you found the Knight's Chapel podcast. I'm James Nelson. The truth exists. It can be known. And he is seeking you. The New Testament has scarcely been opened. We have hardly gotten past the genealogies in the first chapter of Matthew when we come across this peculiar passage. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privilege. Now, I say that that is a peculiar passage because typically we think of justice and mercy as being at opposite ends of the spectrum. One thing that we need to understand is that a Jewish wedding in biblical times had a peculiar feature, and it was a, a period of separation between the uh, groom and the bride. Uh, this served a couple of purposes, and the purposes were unique depending on whether we're t discussing the bride or whether we're discussing the groom. Um, for the bride, this was referred to as the period of purification. And this was where uh, the proof and demonstration of the virginity of the bride was, was obtained. But it also served the purpose that the groom would go off and he would build a house. He would prepare his work in the field whereby he was going to support his wife. If the groom was rich, um, then that period of separation was he would, he would go into his father's house and he would prepare a place there. We see that verbiage play out in John chapter 14, uh, where Jesus says, in my father's house were many mansions. That's something we'll get to at some point in the future. But here we see that Joseph and Mary, they were poor. And so Joseph had to go away uh, during this period of betrothal, this betrothal period, and he had to prepare his work in the field, or in his case, because he was a carpenter, um, he, he got himself set up uh, with regards to that, and uh, and then he came back and to get his to get his bride. This betrothal period was different than our engagement. The closest thing we have to it is engagement, but it was substantially different because uh, the agreements towards marriage had already taken place, except that the marriage had not yet been consummated. If the groom came back and the bride. Uh, was found to not have been faithful during that period, um, it was permissible under the law that he could have her put to death as a harlot, uh, because at that point it could be argued that she had played the harlot. But what we see here with Joseph is this peculiar language where it says that Joseph, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away and as I pointed out, we normally think of justice as being the harsher quality, uh, more in adherence with a strict uh, understanding of truth, and mercy as being that virtue uh, more closely associated with compassion and, and love. So the idea that Joseph's mercy was leveraged from his justice is a strange idea indeed. Now, I want to say that again so that we don't miss it. Joseph's mercy was leveraged off of his justice. The scriptures say that Joseph, being a just man and not willing to make her public example, was minded to put her away privily. In other words, he could have required the death penalty, but he didn't. Now, we end up finding out later that, in fact, this is a really great thing uh, because Mary was innocent, and what was in her, we're told in subsequent verses, uh, the child that was in her was conceived of the Holy Ghost. But what I really want to focus on is this idea that his justice was the engine that that drove his mercy. There is in the law a idea of detrimental dependence. In other words, 
if you give someone a promise and they make decisions off of that promise because they've been dependent upon your promise and then you withdraw that and they suffer damages, that you're responsible for those damages because the trust, the dependence that they had on you was a trust or a dependence that you had created in them. In the case of Joseph, no doubt, as he was courting Mary, um, he uh, not only went and won her heart, but also gave her every indication and inducement that he would be a good husband and that she could trust him and that he would love her and that he would care for her and that there was only and ever a heart of compassion in him for her. And even if, hypothetically, Mary had uh, broken that trust, that didn't release Joseph from the responsibility to the trust that he had caused Mary to have in him. One could say, yes, but the law said uh, that he could have done X, Y, Z. Yes, the law said, but equally, the law says that there is a dependence, that, that when you've created a dependence or a trust in another person upon you, that you have an obligation to the trust that you yourself have created in that person. And Joseph, even though at this point uh, it looked bad, Joseph was a just man and his mercy was driven by his justice. When we consider how God has done something so similar with us that he has asked us and required us and made the only avenue to approach him be faith. They that, that, that uh, were told in uh, Hebrews 11, 6, that but without faith it is impossible to please him, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Um, so the only avenue to God, you, you've heard me colloquially sum it up as uh, that we're saved by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. The only avenue uh, to God is uh, by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. The fact that God has made that the only avenue to him, uh, not church membership, not any particular church, certainly not anything sectarian. This is this is through the finished work of Jesus Christ. But God has made the only avenue to him to be through the Son and by faith. So that functions not only as an inducement, but a requirement. That also makes God responsible for the qualifications for approach to him that he has laid at our doorstep. And knowing that we are also uh, still in these sinful bodies and prone to sin, uh, we're born into sin, uh, yes, we have a choice once we're in Christ because the Holy Spirit's within us and empowers us uh, to have a choice beyond our sin nature. But we are still in sin. Paul even comments to this and says that, uh, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? And if the penman of much of the New Testament has that to say of himself, um, surely we ourselves are in no better place. To really nail that down, we look at uh, Romans 8 and verse 1. It says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made us free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for the sin condemned sin in the flesh. The line of demarcation for that, though, is relationship. And we'll talk about that in just a couple of minutes in our next segment.
obviously we find out as the text moves on that um, while Joseph's mercy was uh, well placed and well executed, that it was also unnecessary because Mary was innocent. Um, and what was conceived in her was the miraculous provision for your sin and for my sin, namely Jesus Christ, uh, which was prophesied in Genesis 3.15, where uh, God speaking to Eve said, And thy seed shall bruise his, the serpent's head, and he, the serpent, shall bruise his, your son's heel. Um, well, women don't have seed. Women have eggs. Seed is always associated, even scripturally, with the man. So this is a prophecy of and for Messiah that would come who would be virgin-born. The necessity of him to be virgin-born, uh, we end up running into in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, where it says, Wherefore, as by one man's sin, death entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. So anyone that wants to blame uh, sin in the world that's impacting the entire world upon Eve, yeah, you got an argument with the Apostle Paul who penned the book of Romans, and as holy writ, uh, you've got a bigger argument because now your argument's with God. No, um, Mary may have been the first one to sin, but if Mary had been the only one who had sinned, she would have sinned under herself and God would have had to have made some provision just for her. Um, but Adam sinned. And we're told that since man determines the blood uh, of, of the offspring, that since Adam plunged himself into sin by, by the choices that he made in the garden, that on the basis of that, death and sin passed upon all men. This is a doctrine that is referred to as a federal headship of Adam. Um, Adam and Eve were the only people on the planet at the time, and uh, that essentially made them the king and queen of the earth. Um, and, and Adam, as the father of all uh, humans, uh, he had this federal headship, and the decisions that he made ended up impacting all those that followed. Uh, Eve was created after the similitude of Adam. She, she was created from the rib of Adam, but Adam was the one who had the responsibility in the federal headship, um, which is why Jesus is referred to as the second Adam, that through uh, Adam, we all became sinners, but through Christ, we have the opportunity to be saved. And we are saved through uh, through his grace that was shed abroad on the cross, uh, and we appropriate that by faith. We read, Paul talks about that in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, where he says, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Can't say that any clearer than Scripture's already done. Salvation's not by works, it's by grace through faith in Christ. But the picture, the type that we see of Joseph and his relationship with Mary was that predicated upon her trust in him, a trust which he had induced her to have through the courtship process, he had a responsibility to that. And he, on the basis of that responsibility, uh, opted not for the maximum penalty of the law, but for the least penalty of the law. As it happens, again, we find that Mary was innocent, and so there was no punishment that was necessary. Um, but if we see Mary as a type of ourselves, what Joseph could not do in that he was a child of Adam, Jesus did for us, namely justification. Justification is one of those $50 theological terms that basically means that God has, ha has canceled our sin debt. He has declared us righteous before him, not in our righteousness, but through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That occurs on the basis of relationship. How does this relationship take place? Well, when we come to that point in our lives when we realize that we are sinners, that we cannot save ourselves, 
ourselves, right? Ephesians 2, 8, 9, not of works lest any man should boast, um, that we realize we can't save ourselves, we can't even help, and we place our faith and trust in the finished, finished, finished work of Jesus Christ. And we know that it is finished because while on the cross he said, it is finished. And if deathbed testimony is to mean anything than the deathbed, I dare say, cross testimony of Jesus Christ that it is finished is final. But our standing before the throne, our standing before the Father, is a standing that is established based upon relationship. And predicated upon that relationship, we we just read in uh, uh, Romans chapter 8 verse 1 that there is therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus and are called according to his purpose. Now, just because we have no condemnation upon us, does that mean that we are free to just go ahead and live as we choose? Interesting word, freedom, (laughs) because we are freed from sin. And actually, uh, to stay indigenous to the book of Romans, the book of Romans comments upon that. Closing out the uh, fifth chapter of Romans, uh, starting with uh, verse 18, therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. In uh, opening in uh, the following chapter, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism uh, into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in the newness of life. So freedom from condemnation is not a license to sin. In fact, the, the the sealing of salvation is the fact that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit of God, that the Holy Spirit indwells us, and that is what gives us the power to, uh, to overcome our sin. That whereas before we were dead in trespasses and sin, we were in bondage to sin, we didn't have a choice to do anything but sin, because sin wasn't just simply, simply something that we did. Sin was something that we were. And because of Christ, now we are made new creatures and, if you will, married to him. The church is the bride of Christ in the same way that Mary was the bride of Joseph. Uh, And I say all that to say this, that because Christ has induced us to trust him, he himself is obligated to that trust as well. Upon some tenuous technicality that was Uh, foisted upon him by trickery? No, because of his great love for us. Nothing was tricked upon him. Nothing was foisted upon him. This was a, a, a condition that he placed upon himself. And if that's not true, then what shall we say of his death on the cross on our behalf? No, surely it is true that because of his great love for us, he died on the cross for our sins. And because of the trust that he's induced us to trust him with, he functions in faith with that faith. I should say, in good faith, with our faith in him.
it should be pointed out that we are no mere trophy bride. That because of the working of the Holy Spirit in us, because of the redemptive work of Christ in us, uh, we are new creatures. We are not what we were. We are something new. And as the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit uh, begins to play out in our lives and we start getting uh, things cleaned up, we start to realize that it's not just for the restriction of the bad things that we do, but it's also to turn on the faucet, the fountain, if you will, of virtue within us to be an outreach to the world and to share with the world uh, what Christ has done in us. If we were to be mere a, a mere trophy bride of Christ as the church, then where would be the meaning? Where would be the purpose? Where would be the sense of identity? There'd be very little about our Christianity that would be satisfying because as it came to the activity that played out thereafter, we'd have no part in it. It'd be a situation where, well, yeah, we're, we're saved. Okay, we're sit on the couches, saved individuals, and, and it wouldn't be very long before we'd be very unhappy with that. Um, and certainly we wouldn't find any meaning, purpose, or identity in that. Uh, when, when God purposed to redeem the world, he didn't just redeem it in the sense that he saved us from sin, but he bought back the purpose that he had had for us in the first place. That purpose was to uh, fellowship with him, but was also to impact the larger world around us. Um, in the book of Psalms, there's a very interesting passage um, in Psalms 31, starting in verse 10. Who can find a virtuous woman for her price is far above rubies? The heart of her husband does safely trust in her so that he shall have no need of spoil. She will do him good and not evil all the days of her life. She seeketh wool and flax and worketh willingly with her hands. She is like the merchant ship. She bringeth her food from afar. She riseth also while it is yet night and giveth meat to her household and a portion to her maidens. She considereth a field and buyeth it. With the fruit of her hand she planteth a vineyard. She girdeth her loins with strength and strengtheneth her arms. She perceiveth that her maiden, her, that her merchandise is good. Her candle goeth not out by night. She layeth her hands to the spindle, and her in her hands hold the distaff. She stretcheth out her hand to the poor. Yea, she reacheth forth her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of the snow for her whole, for her household. For her household are clothed with scarlet. She maketh herself coverings of tapestry. Her clothing is silk and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sitteth among the elders of the land. She maketh fine linen and selleth it, and delivereth girdles unto the merchants. Strength and honor are her clothing, and she shall rejoice in time to come. And the passage goes on and talks much more about the virtue of this virtuous woman. But where we usually consider this in exclusion, uh, exclusively uh, about women, let's consider it in a slightly different light. Let's consider this as the church. Are we virtuous? Well, we certainly have the potential to be. Um, not in and of and by ourselves, but because of the redemptive work of Christ that's been done in us and the gifts, starting with the Holy Ghost. I'll stop and consider that for a moment. When Paul talks about the earnest of our inheritance, the earnest is a, is an older term uh, that refers to the down payment, that there are many gifts which God gives, but the earnest of our inheritance, the down payment of our inheritance is none other than the Holy Spirit of God that indwells us and seals us. I say seals because we cannot lose our salvation any more than God can uh, refuse, can, can deny himself. He cannot die us. He cannot deny us. One may break fellowship, but one cannot break relationship 
particularly a relationship by blood, because the blood will always tell the truth of it. And we uh, we have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, and on that basis we have a relationship that cannot be canceled out. But regarding the gifts, we talked about gifts before. Our gifts are those areas where God has said, uh, I want you to impact the world. I've given you these gifts. I've given you these talents. Sometimes your gift is, is maybe not a talent in the sense of playing the piano or doing artwork or something like that. Sometimes your gift is actually um, some injustice you cannot abide. And so you, you say, I cannot, not on my watch. I can't let this go. No, not on my watch. And so we... Uh, we engage whatever that is. In some cases, our gift uh, will be our love for another person. Some people have the gift of mercy and they go out. Um, I've got friends right now that are talking about going out and reaching out to homeless people and helping homeless people, uh, particularly as we're going some through some of the uh, issues of this year. And that heart of mercy that intercedes between the homeless and their need, uh, that insistence in our heart can be a gift. In some cases, our gift is actually a talent. Whether it is uh, a musical instrument that seems to prepare our hearts to approach God uh, in, in a music service, perhaps in church, or whether it's teaching the Word of God. We all have gifts. Uh, some evangelists, some teachers, some preachers, um, some have uh, the gift of music, some have there's various gifts we have. Um, quite often, I know that our gift seems to drive us. So those things that we cannot let pass, those hungers... Sometimes even our woundings can be a gift. Uh, there's a Persian poet, Rumi, that said that the wound is the place where the light enters us. Interesting. Interesting. There is, I think, some perhaps some truth to that. But with our gift comes agency. I've discussed agency before, but it bears repeating. Agency is that aspect where we have the means to impact the world around us. And we need to be careful when somebody tries to uh, speak about our gifting to decide that our gift needs to needs to uh, uh, fit their satisfaction, that they need to be satisfied about what that gifting is, it doesn't have to satisfy them. Maybe your gift isn't for that person, but it's for someone. And you are, you are on this planet to reach someone. But many people will speak to your gift, to your calling, to your that itch that you have to scratch, and they'll decide that they have someone to comment upon it. Well, it's not up to them to comment upon it. And so we need to learn to turn the volume down, to put those people on ignore, because in some cases, they just don't see it. Well, the reason they don't see it is because God didn't give that to them. He gave it to you. Uh, he may have given them other gifts. Okay, so be it. But that's not up to them to comment upon you. And we we can really get tied up in how we respond to other people because of their short-sightedness. Well, let, let God correct that. Uh, sometimes that's difficult to take, but in the final analysis, it is God that vindicates us. And the scriptures say, you know, who art thou that judges another man's servant? Well, who are they that they should judge us? But that being said, uh, be careful of those who try to steal your agency by, by canceling or commenting upon what your gift is or should be or how they think it should. No, we each stand or fall before the Savior who bled and died for us, who is our entry point into the throne room of God. That's who we answer to, the one who justified us by his own blood. As you go into this week, please be blessed. Engage those gifts and do not wait for someone else's approval before you do. And always remember that the truth exists, it can be known, and he is seeking you.